We have an Old Testament reading this morning from Genesis chapter 18. We'll be reading Genesis 18 verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Hear then the word of the Lord. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. We're looking at this passage today because it, I think, describes well for us two different things that we should keep in mind when we talk about the judgment of God. It displays these things for us. This comes in the, in the midst of a well-known story as Abraham has been speaking with these angels that appear like men. One of them he speaks to as though he's speaking to the Lord himself. And just before this, these angels have told him that uh, a year from then, Sarah will give birth. When they come back again, she will have uh, baby even in her old age but then they turn we're told in verse 20 just before what we read then the Lord said because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me and if not I will know so there's a shift now toward these cities that it seems may deserve this judgment and the Lord is going to go and find out if that is what is needed to see if that the outcry from their sin really is what it seems to be and when God speaks this way to Abraham Abraham doesn't question God whether or not he's going to find the outcry against this city to be what it seems to be. He's, he doesn't say, no, Lord, you don't understand. They're actually much better than you think down there. He knows 
that they are wicked. He knows of their wickedness. He doesn't try to defend the people. He's well aware of what they're like. He does, however, intercede on their behalf. Specifically, he intercedes on behalf of those who might be righteous in the city. And so this passage teaches us two things about God in his judgment. And the first comes as God is speaking to Abraham and Abraham is interceding for these people and it's that God is just in his judgments. Abraham approaches God knowing that he will be just in what he does. This is why he says, will not or shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is yes. Of course he will. That's why Abraham is trying to intercede on behalf of those who may be in the city who are righteous, because he knows that God will do what is just. He's confident in that. This is why he speaks to him. And very often when we speak about God's judgment, when we think about about God judging sin or judging the world, we want to debate it. We want to argue against it. We want to question it in a way, not to question the activity of God in, in in a humble way that we just don't understand. We just don't understand how he is just in this particular moment, but we want to question it in that we think we know better than God. We think that we are in a position to judge him and his judgments, right? Whether or not it's right for him to do what he's doing. But what we have to accept from the outset is what Abraham accepts. God is just. He is just in his judgments. So we start with that presupposition, right? If if I don't understand the judgments of God, it's something... I need to grow in, not something that God has to grow in or change. The problem is with us. And so we shouldn't read this as though Abraham is challenging God in a spirit of, of kind of fighting him, saying, saying no, this isn't, this isn't right at all. Abraham is not speaking to God as an equal, although God has condescended in such a way to speak to him in that way. But rather, he is interceding on behalf of others, much like a child would, to their parent. The second thing that this teaches us about God and his judgment is that God doesn't even desire the death of the wicked. He doesn't even desire the judgment of the wicked. You don't serve a God who revels in destruction, who revels in death. It may be just. He may be just to carry it out. But it's not as though this is something that he delights in. Rather, we're told that our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we're told that he comes in order to check whether or not this outcry against Sodom is what has come up to his ears. Now, obviously, this is a kind of anthropomorphism. God knows. God knows where they're at. And yet, he does this, in a sense, to give them more time to repent as well as to give Abraham a chance to intercede on their behalf. 
There's time left then for them to repent. God is, he is slow to anger. He is slow to this judgment. And God makes it clear that if there are righteous in the city, even just 10 righteous in the city, he would spare the entire city. Now, why does Abraham stop at 10? It's probably because Lot's family, Lot, his nephew who lives in Sodom, his family would number 10. And that's probably why Abraham stops there. He wants to save Lot's family. Now, we know in the story that the city's not saved. Sodom and Gomorrah, neither of the cities are saved. They're both destroyed because not even all of those 10 were actually righteous. But God does save righteous Lot out of the city. He brings him out of the city. So even there, he, he is just in that he brings the righteous out. Now, this doesn't mean that God cannot judge a city. He cannot judge a people when there's righteous among them, right? God is just to judge as he sees fit. This isn't necessarily something that God is going to hold himself to as though this is the rule now. This is the standard if there's at least 10 righteous there. But what it does show us is that God is is willing for the sake of just 10. We know how wicked the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were. And for the sake of just 10 righteous, he would have saved the whole city because of the kind of influence that just 10 would be able to have. Because of the sanctifying influence, because of his love for them, he would have spared these entire cities. So it tells us something about the character of God. When we think about God's judgment, we want to keep these things in mind. He is just, right? What he does is just. And also, he is slow to judgment. He is slow to anger. He desires the repentance of sinners. Our New Testament reading and sermon text comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 5 to verse 12. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 989. I'll give you a moment to turn there with me. Second Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. 
Jesus Christ rules and reigns right now from his heavenly throne. And now is the time of mercy, the time of grace, as we just sung about. He's at work through his church, his body, extending his kingdom, breaking rebels with the iron rod of the gospel, drawing those in darkness into his marvelous light, and sending out his law, his word, throughout the world. But there will come a time when that work is done, when Jesus Christ has the kingdom he died for, and when established as he plans, he will return to defeat the final enemy, which is death, and hand the kingdom over to the Father. And what is taught throughout the pages of the New Testament is that at that time, on that last day of history as we know it, when Jesus Christ comes again, he will gather all people to himself, those living and those who have died, and everyone will be judged. He will sit on a great white throne of judgment, and those whose names are written in the book of life, he will welcome into his glory. He will give a new heavens and a new earth. But those who are even still rebellious, who reject the gospel, he will cast them into the lake of fire, which is the second death. That is the point where all history is moving. Everything moves that direction. There's going to be a point when the world as we know it will be changed, when sin will be no more. Now it's not as though we're supposed to think of that coming day as though you know the 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 physicality of the world will be gone and we will you know all be in some kind of you know ethereal heavens there's just sitting on clouds we get that image often when it comes to heaven you're just kind of seated in a cloud very well lit place playing harps those sorts of things. This is just kind of in the common psyche. But what's going to happen is the the establishment of a new heavens and new earth. And we shouldn't think of his coming as, you know, going to completely obliterate everything that is right now. But he will change it. Particularly he'll change it in that there will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. But Christ will consummate it. A new heavens, a new earth where we will have an embodied existence just as our risen Lord still has a body. And we will continue to glorify God by growing in our knowledge of God and reflecting his glory. One of the the joys of being a Christian is not that we think, well, we've started this journey and we're going to complete it someday, right? When Christ returns, we will be finished. It'll be done. Well, in a sense, yes, in in that this earthly wandering as we still deal with the old man with sin that clings on that will be done we will be in the full glory of the one in whose image we are made but we're not going to be done in the sense that there will be nothing to do everything will just stop no we will we will go on learning to know God more and more forever because he is infinite right his 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 infinity means that we're going to be searching him out forever, knowing him more and more, glorifying him more and more throughout all of eternity. That's where we're heading. And as we contemplate that, and as we realize that how we move from this, you know, 
world as we know it to that one is with the return of Christ and with his judgment of the world. I want us to think of that judgment in these three ways or through these three lenses. First is that he is coming to judge those who will not glorify him. Second is that he comes to glorify those who do, to be glorified in and to glorify those who already do. And so thirdly, we can, in a sense, anticipate that coming, anticipate that day by glorifying him even now. So first, he is coming to judge those who will not glorify him. Pick up the text in verse 5 again. This is evidence, Paul says, of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Because we're living in a time of mercy when God is working to draw men to himself, when he's withholding his final judgment, it means that he is... He is not judging sin all the time at the moment it occurs. His temporal judgments are still seen in the world. Right? He's still at work judging the world through the rise and fall of nations and kings and peoples through natural disasters and wars and much more. He's in control of all of this. Although we may not understand it, we may not know why he does these things, yet we know that he is in control of them. However, the primary way that God is at work now is in the building up of his kingdom, specifically through the means of grace. There will be times then when God's people are unjustly afflicted by the world, right? Where God's judgment doesn't fall on those who afflict his people. This is happening in Thessalonica. They're experiencing affliction. They're experiencing persecution. And yet they're remaining faithful and steadfast. And just as Christ suffered by the hand of the ungodly, so too as believers we will also face trials in this life. And in the moment when that that sort of thing takes place, it may seem unjust. And in fact, it may be unjust. How come God allows his people to be afflicted, to be persecuted, and the unrighteous to go on just fine, even as they are afflicting his people, the ones whom he says that he loves, that his particular delight is in? Why would he do that? The the reason, at least in part, the reason we have here is that uh, he is being patient that God is slow to anger, that he desires the salvation, even of some of the persecutors. It's not because he's unjust. It's not because he will not judge these actions. Think about the persecution and execution of Stephen, the first martyr. If that had not taken place, then Saul of Tarsus would not have had the same opportunity he had to hear about the saving work of Jesus Christ, to hear the testimony of Stephen. And what would have happened if God just smote Saul the moment he began the persecution? And it was just over. Well, just think about how much he used Saul or Paul after he was converted. We wouldn't have most of the New Testament as we know it. There would be far fewer churches that were planted. Now, of course, 
you know, this is, this is thinking in, in things that we don't really know. Obviously, God could do different things. He could work through different people other than Saul. But the way that he worked was in the midst of him persecuting, instead of judging him in that moment, he allowed it to continue and then converted this man in order that he might be an apostle. However, even though God is patient and he's slow to bring into judgments all the actions of the wicked, there is coming a day, we're told here, when he will bring those actions into judgment. It says that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That is going to happen. Those who afflict will be afflicted. When? Right? How will he do this? If it's, not, if it's not now, if it's not when it's happening, why? How? Paul explains. It's just, it, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the day of comfort of God's people and the day of vindication for God's people is the day of vengeance that's coming. The day of vengeance when those who hate and afflict him and his people will receive vengeance, it says. And this comes at the the revealing of the Lord Jesus. When he is revealed, when he returns, it's said that he will come with mighty angels, with fire, and with vengeance. The return of the Lord will not be something that happens in secret or in private that some people see and know. No, everyone will know. Everyone will see it. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks about this this trumpet sound from the archangel. Everybody is going to know. Just like when the sun rises on a clear day and you can't hide from the light and you can't hide from the heat. This is what it will be like when the Son of God returns. And his vengeance is not against everyone and everything. Right? He's not coming to completely destroy, completely to obliterate all things, the world and humanity. He actually comes to complete the work that he's already begun of making all things new. Right? This will be the time of harvest when the wheat and the tares will be pulled up and separated. And so the judgment of God comes and it will fall specifically on those who do not believe, who do not glorify him, the rebellious. And they're referred to in two different ways. It's not talking about two different groups, but it's talking about the same people, but describing them in two different ways. He says there are those who they do not know God, And they do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to know God, you must know him. Right? He who sees me sees the Father. No one comes to the Father but 
by me. How do you do that? Right? Through obedience to the gospel. By believing in him. By submitting to the name that God has made to be above all other names. Declaring Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father. That's it. Right? There's no other way to truly know God. To refuse the gospel is to refuse God himself, who is offered to us in the gospel. And it says that all who are described this way, right, those who do not know God, who are not obedient to the gospel, it says that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. What does that mean, that they'll be away from the presence of the Lord? I actually think it's probably not the best way to understand this is probably not the best way to translate this phrase. You can, in a sense, say it, right? You can't say that God is not somewhere, that there is somewhere where he is not, right? There, there is no place that it, he is not present. This is something that is true of him as God. So he must be everywhere. So it can't mean that, right? He's present everywhere, right? This can be understood in the way that this is the, the removal of his grace, right? The presence of his grace and mercy, his, his kindness. That all there is left is just judgment and anger. So you could say it in that sense. But I'd want to actually take a different approach. I think that it's best to understand this preposition away from. It, it shouldn't be understood as separation, right? That you're separated somehow from his presence but rather it's speaking of the the origin of this destruction the origin of what is now happening the punishment where does it come from right what's causing it what's causing it here what's happened well it's it's the very presence of the lord and his glory he comes in glory with fire the fire with which the lord jesus christ will return is the fire and light of his glory. And those who are not and refuse to glorify him through the gospel, who do not reflect that glory and who hate it, who have not been set aflame by the Holy Spirit as lights to the world, all those who rebel and seek darkness, to them the glory of God will be a fire of vengeance. Heaven and hell, the way, the way they're described in Scripture, are not primarily places, although that's true. Right? That's, that's not something that should be denied. There's a sense in which they're places. But, but more particularly, they're spoken of as uh, different ways that people relate to God. The different ways that people are in relation to God. The presence of God, which is everywhere, for the ungodly is hell. It is that which they hate. It is a fire that never stops burning. And this is what we often get wrong when we think about the sinful rebellion of mankind. Because we think, if only someone could just see Jesus and experience his presence, right? Then they would change. But of course, we know that's not true because Jesus came and lived among us. He dwelt among us and he was crucified. And we're told in the book of Revelation that when he returns in judgment, it's not as though when he returns, all of a sudden people realize, I was wrong. 
right? I was wrong the whole time. It's not as though they say, yes, like, come, Lord Jesus, I was wrong, forgive me, right? I repent of my sin. No, what do they do? They cry out that the mountains would fall on them so that they can be hidden from his presence. They hate his glory when it's revealed, right? And that's the human heart if it's not been changed, right? Get me away from him. I hate him. That's, that's the cry. That's, that's the natural human heart apart from being born again. In The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, early on in the book, you get this transformation of the character Gollum. Right? You learn how Gollum, who was a creature named Smeagol, becomes Gollum. And I think it's, it's a, a great illustration of what sin does, the, the dehumanizing effects of sin. And so I want to read a, a portion about it. So Smeagol, this character, he's with a friend who finds this ring of power, this dark ring. And Smeagol wants it, so he kills his friend. This then allows him to become invisible when he puts on the ring. It allows him to hear secrets, which when he hears these secrets and uses them against others, it causes an alienation from all those around him. It says that he would hide invisible and they would kick him and he would bite their ankles. There's this division between them. But at one point it says this. This is what I want to read of this story. It says, He wandered in loneliness, weeping a little for the hardness of the world, And he journeyed up the river till he came to a stream that flowed down from the mountains. And he went that way. He caught fish in deep pools with invisible fingers and ate them raw. One day it was very hot. And as he was bending over a pool, he felt a burning on the back of his head. And a dazzling light from the water pained his wet eyes. He wondered at it, for he had almost forgotten about the sun. Then for the last time he looked up. And shook his fist at her. But as he lowered his eyes, he saw far above the tops of the misty mountains, out of which the stream came. And he thought suddenly it would be cool and shady under those mountains. The sun could not watch me there. The roots of those mountains must be roots indeed. There must be great secrets buried there, which have not been discovered since the beginning. So he journeyed by night up into the highlands. And he found a little cave out of which the dark stream ran. And he wormed his way like a maggot into the heart of the hills and vanished out of all knowledge. You see this change where he becomes a kind of creature, though he's made to live in the light of the sun, he becomes a kind of creature that hates the sun, right? It burns him. It it hurts his eyes. Well, in Scripture, Jesus Christ is the sun. And he gave us the sun that it might help us to better understand something about his glory, right? The sun gives light and life and warmth. But to someone who has spent their entire life in a cave or indoors, it would burn them. It will blind them. But the glory of God, when it comes... It's not going to be like that for everyone. It will be a judgment in that it will burn some, right? Those who are not glorifying him. 
But it's not a judgment, it says, for those who are glorifying him already. Right? He comes to be glorified in some. He comes to glorify some. Verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now the testimony of Paul that he's speaking of, this isn't his, you know, his personal testimony. It's not, it's not his giving of his own personal you know, faith journey. He's talking about the gospel that he has preached. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ. We see this in the, the book of Revelation. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, those who are brought into the, the full glory of God at the end, it, we're told that they are those who have conquered or overcome. And throughout the book, we get this idea of what it looks like to conquer and overcome, but there's one particular point where it's clearest, and it says that they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Right? And it's speaking of the, the testimony of all saints. What is the testimony that we all share? What's what is our testimony? It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who have received that testimony, right? if you have believed, he is coming to be glorified in you. To make you a part of that glory, that you would reflect him perfectly. The end is that the glory of heaven... And the glory of earth would be united. And all of it would be the, the glory of Jesus Christ. That all of it would point perfectly to him. Would worship him perfectly. And it's on that basis that Paul then prays what he prays. It's on the basis of the coming glory of Jesus Christ in judgment. That he prays in verse 11 this. To this end we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul gets to this point. He says that you can glorify Jesus Christ even now. You, you can take part in that glory even now before he comes. You can purify yourself now in such a way that, that when he comes in all of his glory, in all of the radiance of his glory, in all the, the brightness, think about all the ways that scripture describes this, fire and light and heat. When he comes, you could be in such a place that you you're anticipating it you're excited you're you're not going to blink when the sun rises you're already used to it in a sense you've already been living in its light and this is the work of god we're told right this is what he is doing through the proclamation of the word and through the sanctification of his holy spirit what he's doing is to make you a kind of conduit of his glory in the world now that will be received by those who he is preparing to be glorified in when he comes paul also says that to some that is the it's the stench of death right they'll hate it why were the thessalonians being persecuted it wasn't because they were unfaithful it was because they were faithful 
to Christ. And those who would not receive that glory will treat them as they treated him. But he is making us worthy. That's what he's doing among you. He's making you worthy. He's, he's making it so that he might fulfill all good and faith in you. So that you're ready when he returns. The son of righteousness will rise. Jesus Christ will return. And so the question we're left with is, will you be ready when he does? If you have never believed and come to know God, I know that any time we talk about the the judgment of God, it will seem so foreign. It will seem so horrible to you. The very idea of vengeance or judgment from God, the idea that you might be deserving of some kind of destruction like it speaks of. The problem is that sin has blinded your mind if you are an unbeliever. It's as though you have been living in a cave. And I'm telling you that the the heat that burns you and the sharp blinding nature of light as it's hitting you, that this is actually coming from something that brings life right, that brings light, that brings warmth. I know it's hard for you to believe. My prayer is that if that's you today, that God would do that work of changing your heart, that you would hear these things, that you'd be given eyes to see, that you would see his light, the light of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. I know that most of us are here because we do believe. That's why we've come. That's why we we gather as we do. So my prayer for you today and the admonition for you today from the text is that you would prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. And that doesn't mean to try to figure out when it's going to happen. It doesn't mean pull out the, the charts and the newspaper and line things up just right. We know how that's worked over the last hundred years of Christian history when our focus on the coming of the Lord was... Is it going to happen any moment now? When Paul is speaking of this, what what does he say, right? What's his admonition? What's his prayer? It's that you would be found worthy of this calling. That your faith and goodness would grow. To prepare yourself and anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ is to live in such a way that you're glorifying him even now. You're you're already glorifying him as you will then. Not perfectly as you will then. Not without sin as then. But you are already beginning to do that. You're walking in the light even as he is in the light. Walking in the light of the sun and, and living in that light. To reflect the life and light and the warmth of the glory of Jesus Christ. You're supposed to live in such a way that he would not be ashamed of you if he returned right this moment. If it were this moment, if he found us right now, would we be ashamed? Would we run from that light? Or would we be ready for him? You're supposed to live in such a way that you will not be ashamed of him when he returns. So you live now as you will be then when he comes to judge. That's what we want. Would you pray with me?
Lord God, we know that, as it says in the text, that this is your work, that you must do this work in us. So we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would use your words to build us up, to sanctify us, in order that we might be ready when you return. Help us, Father, to glorify you, to shine forth the light of your truth, to live in such a way that when you return, we will not be ashamed of you and you will not be ashamed of us. We pray this all in the power of your name. Amen. If you would stand with me now as we